Motor functional neurological disorder is a common presentation in the neurology clinic. However, with the right skills and awareness, it can be accurately diagnosed and often successfully treated. This month's JNNP features a review of the progress made in motor functional neurological disorder over the last decade. And joining me now is one of its authors, Dr. Kurt LaFrance Jr., who is Director of Neuropsychiatry and Behavioural Neurology at Rhode Island Hospital and Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Albert Medical School, Brown University. So uh, a very warm welcome to you, Dr. LaFrance, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Colin. Uh, we are very excited about this work that's been uh, published. And, you know, for this project, we assembled an international expert team of authors and reviewed diagnosis mechanisms, etiology, treatments, and stigma for motor FND. For many neurologists, diagnosis of functional neurological disorders remains challenging and we worry about misdiagnosis. Your review article discusses positive clinical features in motor FND, which may help us. Can you tell us some of the more useful clinical signs to aid in the diagnosis? Well, one of the major recommendations we made for the DSM-5 conversion disorder FND advisory group was to add a new criterion of inconsistency and incongruity on examination. Uh, these are signs that are not consistent with neuroanatomic pathways. So the neurologist can use the exam and not just say, oh, it's a normal exam, but actually this is inconsistent and incongruent with the neuroanatomic neurophysiologic pathways. So we've actually made it a rule-in diagnosis rather than the DSM-4 rule-out convention that was used in the past. So in light of that, a couple of things many neurologists have heard of uh, may include the Hoover's sign, uh, which is involuntary extension of the paralyzed leg with, and occurring when the flexing the contralateral leg against resistance. And that's based on the principle of synergistic contraction. Uh, another sign that helps is uh, the hip abductor or abductor sign. And that's basically the Hoover sign, but in the horizontal plane. For tremor, an example is the entrainment sign. And that's where the tremor takes on the rhythmic paced movement performed with another body part. So these can be incorporated into your physical exam of your patients. So we know that prior to the advent of what are now routine investigations like MRI, many neurological conditions were labeled as psychiatric. How do you think over the last decade, our knowledge and understanding of the biological mechanisms which underpin these disorders uh, have evolved? And what do you think are the research priorities in this area? It's interesting because, you know, that ghost of Elliot Slater's paper on the misdiagnosis of what was then called hysteria, it still makes an occasional appearance, even, you know, the 21st century. And people would quote, you know, the observation that uh, these are actually neurologic disorders. Uh, we just haven't found the right lab for it yet. And so hopefully this has been put, you know, to rest in that Misdiagnosis occurred about 15% before the Slater study, and then it's averaged about 4% in studies since 1970. And that's the rate that's similar to other psychiatric and neurologic conditions. So when you do your workup, you're going to find that the conventional labs and studies, they're going to be negative or normal in, in motor FND. For instance, your brain MRI, your EMG nerve conduction studies in the presence of limb weakness. So then you say, well, what other studies or what other biological mechanisms may be at play here? 
what we uh, described in the paper was that new developments in biological mechanisms uh, include a broader neuroscience field. Uh, so in, that includes studies of motor control, such as the sense of agency, cognitive and affective neuroscience, and that's looking at attention and emotional processing, and also computational neuroscience. And that involves, you know, the idea of uh, active interference and the dynamic relationship between sensory and predictions that allow movement. So it's really moved from beyond just looking for the EEG for seizure or the MRI for the weakness. Many clinicians speculate that those with uh, motor FND have a prior psychiatric illness or have had some recent acute neurological or other systemic illness before manifesting their motor symptoms. What is the current view on risk factors for the development of these problems? Well, so risk factors in cohort studies of patients with motor FND reveal the importance of adverse life experiences with up to two thirds uh, of these cohorts reporting post-traumatic symptoms and you know 3.9 times higher odds of an FND diagnosis in those with a childhood abuse history compared with the controls. So it's something we need to ask about as clinicians. It's there in some people, but not in everybody. And so the current view doesn't dismiss these predisposing factors. It rather broadens the view that other predisposing vulnerabilities are present. So fearful attachment styles or alexithymia, uh, comorbid mood symptoms. These findings highlight the stress, diathesis, and the neurodevelopmental perspectives, emphasizing the environment and biological interplay between risk, life events, and precipitating factors. So we recently had a podcast uh, talking about the development of outcome measures in FND. So thankfully, there's now been a shift towards intervention and trials. But could you summarize what have the uh, key therapeutic advances been over the last decade? A lot of these advances have come with education on the exam findings for FND, like we talked about earlier, and increased collaboration between psychiatry and neurology and rehab medicine in these FND clinics. And there's been major therapeutic advances over the last decade. So in the past decade, there have been seven randomized controlled trials of motor FND that have been published and that we reviewed. And the greatest impact has been seen in physiotherapy. Uh, included education, motor retraining, and self-management. So I kind of refer to this as PT squared. And what I mean by that is physical therapy and psychotherapy. Uh, so likewise, an RCT of multidisciplinary rehab for functional gait, which consisted of adapted physical activity with a cognitive behavioral framework, that showed a significant difference between the treatment and the weightless groups. One thing of note is that an RCT of Botox showed no significant difference in the primary outcome at four months. So we can't just inject this away, if you will. And then lastly, an online self-help approach showed no additional treatment benefit in the online internet education self-help group above usual care alone. So the evidence from the past decade shows that a combination of psychologically informed and infused rehab may have the benefit that we're looking for. And finally, you discussed the important issue of stigma, which surrounds a diagnosis of uh, motor FND. And I have certainly seen this from clinicians and carers and spouses, and of course, patients themselves, often embarrassed by the idea of a diagnosis 
of a functional disorder. So how have we been addressing this issue and what more can we do to reduce the impact of stigma? So stigma represents a complex interplay between patients and clinician, patient relationships and healthcare systems and sociocultural factors. We address three aspects of stigma, including public stigma, personal stigma, patient label avoidance. So one way to reduce the stigma uh, impact is by education, which is what you know, you're doing right now. That was the main goal of our review article, education of clinicians to increase knowledge and awareness of this common neuropsychiatric presentation, education of patients and family members that it's diagnosable and treatable, education to society and to health systems that dedicated hospital services and research funding agencies, uh, you know, if they'll realize the costly nature of this condition, that it can be reduced with further development of effective treatments and evidence-based intervention, that education really may be one of the main ways to reduce stigma. So I'd like to thank my contributor, Dr. Kurt LaFrance Jr. for really an excellent overview and state-of-the-art update on motor functional neurological disorders. And remind our listeners that this article is available in full uh, for download now at the JNNP. And for now, uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope to catch you all on the next JNNP podcast. Thanks and goodbye.